Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, it's Alan Cross, and for the next few weeks of the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, we're going back to revisit a series we did a little while ago called 100 Weird Things About New Rock. This is a 10-part series, and it explored a lot of topics, with each episode dealing with a particular brand of weirdness, sex, the law, drugs, strange recordings, excess, road stories, bad behavior, and more. There's a lot that goes into the music that we don't always hear about, despite what you may hear on the internet. So it's kind of like my job to fill you in. You ready for some weirdness? Okay, but don't say I didn't warn you. Money is a weird thing. When you don't have it, it's all you can think about. When you do have it, it's pretty much the last thing on your mind. It's got to be especially weird for successful musicians. 99.9% of all rock performers come from very modest backgrounds, And for years, they make sacrifices for their art, hoping and praying that one day they won't have to worry about where their next meal comes from or how they're going to manage to pay their rent. But 99.999% of professional musicians will never hit the big time. They may make an okay living, but they will never be truly rich. But what about that one one thousandth of one percent that do hit the big time? For them, life changes a lot and changes fast. Suddenly, they're able to do and have things that they've never, ever dreamed of. Some can handle it and ease into the uber-rich lifestyle with elegance and grace. Others still use their new positions to do strange, excessive, and occasionally destructive things. And, not surprisingly, things on all sides of the ledger can get quite weird. This is part nine of 100 Weird Things About New Rock, 10 Tales of Wealth, Success, and Excess. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and here we are with part nine of 100 Weird Things About New Rock. If you've been following along, you'll know that this series is divided up into 10 episodes, each dealing with a particular brand of weirdness. So far, we've tackled things like sex, the law, drugs, strange recordings, road stories, and so on. Now it's a show about money. Now, let's keep in mind that weirdness is all in the eye of the beholder, so any attempt to create a list of the weirdest things of all time would be impossible. But what you are about to hear is at least among the weirdest things in history of new rock and alternative music when it comes to money. And I want to begin with a story about hats. Specifically, the hats 
of U2. Anyone who's ever seen U2 in any form over the last 30 years, live, video, pictures, doesn't matter, will have seen the edge in some kind of headgear. Might be anything from a cowboy hat to a skullcap of some sort. Why, you may ask? Well, the Edge used to have long, thick hair. Just look at any pictures before the Joshua Tree. But in the late 1980s, his hair started thinning, and he became a little self-conscious about that. He now wears nothing less than a wool cap in public at all times. He even wore one to his wedding to Morley Steinberg in 2002. I can think of only one time in recent memory when the Edge made an appearance without a hat. That would be during the Pavarotti and Friends concert in 1995. So bottom line here is that the Edge's headgear has become a very important and very distinctive part of his look. Works for him, too. Now, you may have wondered how many hats the Edge might own. There is an answer, at least as of the fall of 2007. And that answer is 375. He says his favorite is a moleskin top hat that he wears on special occasions. Now, that's extravagant, but The Edge has nothing on Bono's favorite hat. In May of 2003, Bono was scheduled to appear with Luciano Pavarotti in Modena, Italy, for a group of Iraqi refugees. To his horror, Bono realized that he had left his favorite hat back in the UK. He didn't want to perform without it, so he phoned back to London and asked that it immediately be shipped to him. FedEx? No. See, Bono has assistance for this sort of thing. He has hat assistance. They put the hat in a taxi, which drove the hat to Heathrow Airport. That cost 100 bucks. Then it was placed in a first-class seat on a British Airways flight. The hat had its own seat. They paid $1,700 for this seat for a hat. But because the cabin crew was worried that the hat might get squashed in its seat, it was upgraded from first class to a place in the jump seat in the cockpit. Upon arrival, the hat was collected by a driver who delivered it to Bono at the concert. And did I mention that the event was designed to raise money for Iraqis made homeless by the war? Talk about all that you can't leave behind, huh? You too, live in Paris. We'll get back to their millions later. Weird wealth item number two has to do with Oasis. Noel and Liam Gallagher came from the rough side of Manchester. Growing up, they had very little money, so when they started selling tens of millions of records, they were determined to enjoy themselves. And Noel, as the chief songwriter of the group and therefore the person who made the most money, enjoyed himself a lot. Lots of drugs, lots of guitars, lots of exotic vacations, lots of cars including a Rolls-Royce or three, which he couldn't drive because he didn't have a driver's license. For a while, he lived in a garishly decorated house at 8 Steeles Road in the Belsize Park area of London. The place was really easy to find. It was the one with the words Supernova Heights and stained glass over the front door. He and his then-partner Meg bought it in the middle 90s for 2.5 million pounds, which back then was an absolute fortune. They described this as their rock and roll mansion. Others described it as tawdry pub kitsch. Things like zebra print couches and other wild animal prints. There was a big gothic bed. Millions were spent on some of the most tasteless furnishings anyone has ever seen. Somewhere in the order of $700,000, 
was spent covering the kitchen walls with tiny little paintings of yellow submarines. Some kind of weird Beatles tribute. And no one really understands why part of the decor included handcuffs. But when it came to Oasis and Excess, the poster child was Noel's former wife, Meg Matthews. Meg became known as a notorious, conspicuous consumer when it came to her shopping habits. Towards the end of the whole Britpop era, she was the country's most infamous shopper. She had been hired as a party planner for Creation Records, Oasis's record label. This got her in all the society and gossip columns. One article detailed how she was spending £27,000 every month on just clothes and beauty products. Not a week went by without a picture in the paper of her struggling along Sloan Street or New Bond Street under the weight of multiple Gucci bags. There were stories about how she spent £50,000 on a birthday party for Anais, the daughter that she had with Noel. Now Meg says that's not true. Come on, a £50,000 birthday party for a kid? Well, somebody leaked that figure. And she did, by the way, get a very, very posh boob job. Later, Meg had her own column in the independent newspaper where she detailed aspects of her beautiful life. Then, when the marriage went south, details were leaked about the settlement. She wanted £40,000 a month. Noel countered with what he considered to be a more reasonable amount, £25,000 a month. In the end, he kept the house but was ordered to give Meg a house in Regent's Park, which he bought for her for £1.2 million. Then, in the summer of 2007, Meg liquidated some of the furnishings from Supernova Heights on eBay. Netted about $30,000. Bad taste has a big depreciation. But don't feel bad. Noel is still worth something north of $50 million. Much of it as the result of this song, which, by the way, he wrote for Meg in Happier Times. Because maybe detail of the rock and roll rich number two, the way Noel Gallagher and then-wife Meg Matthews hooked up, spent money, and then divorced. Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols has been very careful about cultivating and maintaining his punk image. After all, the man did come from a very poor working-class Irish background, and yes, he did make a lot of money from the Sex Pistols eventually. It took a couple of decades because of a variety of legal issues, but the money did come. But here's something that most punk fans don't know. Johnny Rodden, or Johnny Lydon as he's now called, is married to a German media and publishing heiress. Her name is Nora Forster. They met during the Pistols' first go-round in the late 1970s. He was about 22, she was 36. Nora already had a daughter named Ariana, otherwise known as Ari Up, in a band called The Slits, an all-girl band that was formed at around the same time as the Pistols. Ari introduced Mom to Johnny, and they've been together ever since. It's rumored that Nora is worth somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 million pounds. Meanwhile, Johnny, unbeknownst to most people, has made a considerable fortune by playing the real estate market in the UK. And we're talking millions and millions. Weird wealth item number three, Johnny Rotten and his real estate fortunes. 
and his wife's publishing riches. On that topic, there's also Courtney Love. Courtney has a nice annuity coming from her dead husband's musical legacy, but there might be more coming. Let me ask you this. Do you wear contact lenses? Could they be Bausch and Lomb contacts? If so, it's possible that you're putting money into Courtney's future pockets. Courtney's mom is a woman named Linda Reese. She was the adopted daughter of a wealthy San Francisco couple. Linda's adoptive mom was the heiress to the Bosch and Lom fortune. This money explains how Courtney's family moved around to do things like start sheep farms in New Zealand when she was young. And some of that money eventually made its way to Courtney and supplemented her income when she was working as a stripper in the days before she met Kurt. These days, Bausch & Lomb has annual revenues in the neighborhood of $2 billion. Therefore, unless she's been written out of any wills due to bad behavior, and unless karma really doesn't exist, it stands to reason that Courtney Love will one day inherit even more money than she got when Kurt kicked. Weird Tale of Wealth number four, Courtney Love, not only the beneficiary of Kurt Cobain's estate, but quite possibly the heir of a contact lens fortune. Remember at the beginning how I said that 99.9% .9 of all famous musicians came from modest backgrounds and had to struggle to make it? Yeah, well, there's always that one-tenth of one percent, right? An example is next. This is part nine of a 10-part series entitled 100 Weird Things About New Rock. And this particular show is about wealth, success, and excess. Which means it's now time to talk about The Strokes. They were the band that really helped kick off the indie rock revival in the early part of this century. Much of the reason they spent as much time on their music and their career as they did was because The Strokes could afford to. Almost every member of The Strokes came from very wealthy families. They're a bunch of trust fund kids. Singer Julian Casablancas is the son of John Casablancas, the head of the gigantic elite model agency, home to Cindy Crawford, Linda Evangelista, Claudia Schiffer, Tyra Banks, Cameron Diaz, Heidi Klum, and a million others. At one point, young Julian attended a private school in Switzerland. And this is where he met Albert Hammond Jr., the son of a famous singer-songwriter from the 1970s. Anybody remember the song, It Never Rains in Southern California? That was Albert's dad. Drummer Fabrizio Moretti's parents were also well-to-do, which is how they could afford to send him to the Dwight School, a private prep school in Manhattan. That's where he met Julian and guitarist Nick Valenci, the one member of the band from a relatively modest background. The last piece of the puzzle is Nikolai Feiture, the bass player. He used to live with five relatives in a two-bedroom apartment, but the family still managed to send him to a prestigious bilingual school on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. But with all the Casablanca's money bankrolling the band, getting all the gear and the necessary accoutrements of being in a group wasn't hard. So no wonder so many other bands were jealous. The Strokes, a band whose members grew up in families with money to burn. Well, most of them anyway. Oh, and speaking of money to burn, I have a literal case of that for Weird Story of Wealth in Excess number 6. August 23rd, 1994. The KLF, one of the most successful British groups of the early 1990s, 
decided to make a statement. We're really not sure what the statement was because the two guys in the band, Bill Drummond and Jimmy Cotty, have never really explained themselves other than this was apparently some kind of art project designed to show their contempt for money. Follow me on this. Here's what happened. After a series of deliberately provocative stunts, including delivering a dead sheep and an eight gallons of blood to an award show after party, the KLF announced that they were retiring from the music business and would not make another record unless peace reigned throughout the world. That was their condition. No music until there was universal peace. Then they deleted their entire back catalog. KLF records were no longer available, and neither were the royalties from those records. Can't sell records, can't collect royalties. In August of 1994, they cashed out and nailed one million pounds in 50-pound notes to a board. This was apparently the largest single cash withdrawal in the history of the British banking industry. Like I said, 50-pound notes, a million pounds worth, nailed to a board. This board was then paraded around England as a work of art. They called it Nailed to the Wall. And then, on the evening of August the 23rd of 94, with one journalist and one cameraman in tow, Drummond and Cotty went to the island of Jura in Scotland, where they set up shop in an abandoned boathouse with a big fireplace. And that's when they set the whole thing on fire. Not the boathouse, the board with all the money nailed to it. They deliberately burned one million pounds of their own money. If you want proof, it's on YouTube. There's also an hour-long documentary called Watch the K Foundation Burn a Million Quid. So you're probably wondering, <laughs> why would anybody do this? Again, it's something about a satire on materialism, a statement against the greedy nature of the music industry, and um, fill in your own blanks. Moving on to weird wealth item number seven, the money of the Ramones. When the band was together, they never really sold that many records. In fact, only one Ramones record ever went gold, and that was a greatest hits collection. Most of the Ramones' money came from touring and t-shirts. They also made some money licensing individual songs up to compilations and soundtracks. If the rumors are to be believed, however, singer Joey Ramone made most of his money after he retired. In the late 1990s, Joey discovered the stock market. He learned to trade stocks online, taking a lot of tips from TV channels like CNBC. He apparently got quite good at day trading and amassed a substantial fortune before he died. Meanwhile, guitarist Johnny Ramone also did well with his extracurricular activities as a baseball freak. He was a lifelong Yankees fan. He once published a top 10 list where he listed baseball as number one and rock and roll as number two. See, growing up as a kid on Long Island, he dreamed of playing in the major leagues. And along the way with the Ramones, and especially after the band retired in 1996... Johnny devoted a lot of his time to collecting baseball and movie-related items. His specialty was baseball cards. He had lots and lots and lots of vintage baseball cards. And he had lots and lots and lots of vintage movie posters. He had an enormous collection by the time he died, including things like original posters from Frankenstein in 1931 and The Day the Earth Stood Still in 1951. Before he died of prostate cancer, he put in his will that those posters be sold at auction with proceeds going to his wife, Linda. They were sold in a huge two-lot auction in Dallas and netted more than a quarter of a million dollars. I'm not sure where the baseball cards ended up, but they were worth a pretty hefty sum, too. Beat on the brat, beat on the brat, beat on the brat with the baseball bat. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, 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 yeah. 
The Ramones, two of whom, Joey and Johnny, made a lot of money after the band retired on things other than music. Back with three more examples of wealth weirdness, including a punk rocker who has turned teen angst into a fleet of jets. Part 9 of 100 Weird Things About New Rock, coming up in just a second. All right, quick, name the biggest selling indie record of all time. Okay, at this point in history, it's Smash, the 1994 album from The Offspring. It sold somewhere north of 15 million copies for Epitaph, the Orange County punk label. The Offspring sold millions of more records, too. Ixnay on the Ombre, Americana, Conspiracy of One, more than 32 million in total. So in other words, cash flow has been very good to The Offspring. This has allowed singer Dexter Holland to engage in his favorite hobbies. First, there's stamp collecting. Seriously, it's, it's stamp collecting. He's most interested in those from the Isle of Man in the UK. If you're a philatelist, you you know how expensive this can get. And yes, I said philatelist. Look look it up. And then there's Dexter's passion for airplanes and flying. Here's a quote. Some people are into golf. Some people are into shooting deer. I'm into flying. Dexter first got his pilot's license back in 1996. And over the years, his certifications have become more and more sophisticated. He owns a Citation II, which is a twin-engine jet that can fly as high as 43,000 feet for 2,000 miles at a time. They run for about $2.5 million used. Now, there's just the one plane in his fleet, but he calls it Anarchy Airlines. The tail fin is painted with the Anarchy logo and everything, and inside the interior is decked out in leopard prints. (laughs) And there's more. Dexter also flies an Aerovodochity L-39, a Russian jet fighter. And with just a little extra simulator time, Dexter could pilot a 747. On November 25th, 2004, Dexter completed a secret solo flight around the world. LA, New York, Iceland, Egypt, Dubai, Bangkok, Siberian, Russia, Alaska, home. Along the way, he ran into a volcanic eruption in Iceland, locusts in Egypt, and some very surly customs people in Russia who didn't speak English. Now, just imagine that. A jet with the anarchy symbol on the tail lands at a remote Russian airport and this spiky-haired punk rocker walks out. The whole thing took 11 days, and Dexter survived mostly on beef jerky and Doritos. And while he was up there letting the autopilot do all the work, Dexter wrote this song. Wealth story number eight. Offspring singer Dexter Holland and his hideously expensive hobby of flying jets. Item number nine is quite simple. Kurt Cobain made $50 million while dead. In October 2006, Forbes magazine published their list of the highest paid dead celebrities, and Kurt came out on top. He beat Elvis, he beat John Lennon, and he beat Jim Morrison. And it's not just Courtney and the other two Nirvana guys that are benefiting from the public's continuing fascination with Kurt. In 2006, Courtney sold a 25% share of Nirvana's song catalog to a New York company called Primary Wave. They have permission to license Nirvana songs for other purposes so they can generate even more revenue.
Kurt Cobain, richest dead celebrity on the planet. Annual revenues exceeding $50 million. And finally, weird rich item number 10. And it's the complicated answer to a simple question. How rich is U2? Here are a few things we need to know. U2 has sold close to 200 million albums. They own all the publishing rights and master recordings, which means they get a big chunk, a very big chunk, of every CD and download sold. And a single tour can generate $150, $200 million. Their money has been put to work in real estate. In addition to their homes in Dublin, each member of U2 has pied-a-terres in places like the south of France and New York. Bono is also partner in a venture capital company in Silicon Valley called Elevation. They invest in various high-tech things, including video games. And remember how we started this show? Bono having enough money to fly his hat first class from London to Italy and not even give it a second thought? All right, so add all this up. How much is U2's net worth? Well, as a private organization that doesn't have to report their earnings, it's a little difficult to come up with an accurate figure. That's why we have to call it some economists to do some estimating. At the low end, they say that U2 is worth a collective $700 million. The highest figure I've seen is $1.1 billion. So take your pick. Whatever the case, it's enough to make anyone uh, dizzy. You two, billionaire rock stars, and probably the richest of anyone who's emerged from the whole new rock alternative rock scene. And there you have 10 weird stories about wealth, success, and excess from the world of new rock and alternative music. Over the last nine shows, we've talked about weird drug tales, strange sex, odd things from inside the recording studio, and from the road. Each of the last nine shows have been neatly categorized. But what about the kind of weirdness that is just so weird that it defies categorization? Well... That's how we'll conclude this series next time. Ten stories so strange I really didn't know what to do with them. The conclusion of 100 Weird Things About New Rock next time. Technical production by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 